Well, we, uh, we have come to the end, not of humanity, hopefully, uh, but of our sermon series. Was that too soon? Um, our current sermon series, Tough Text. Uh, I told you from the start of this series that our text would get progressively harder as we went through together the past 10 weeks. We have tackled uh, the seemingly irrelevant passages of Scripture, uh, ge- genealogies, censuses, and lists of measurements. What do we do with that? The allegedly contradictory passages of Scripture. Are there two different creation accounts in Genesis? Are there four incompatible resurrection accounts in the Gospels of Jesus? Um, we, we've talked about abortion. We've talked about unanswered prayer. We've talked about justification by works, James chapter 2. Uh, can we lose our salvation, Hebrews chapter 6. The very tough Old Testament law, tough Jesus, hate your father and your mother, Jephthah's vow and his sacrifice of his own daughter, Judges chapter 11, and just last week, head coverings for women and gender roles in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 11. And next Sunday, God in his providential goodness ordained, uh, God willing, you can pray for us, that Polly and I would be in Utah, hopefully adopting a, a new baby into our family, just in time for Pastor Thad. Thank you. Pastor Thad, thank you. Just in time for Pastor Thad to get stuck with the toughest text of all in our series, uh, Romans chapter 9, and double predestination. Why would God create some people, most people, and choose not to elect them for salvation, only to send them to an eternity in hell? So you can come back next week and hear him try and explain that one uh, if coronavirus has not taken us all to our predetermined eternal destinies by that point in time. Uh, But all jokes aside, this morning I I get to unpack with you the second toughest text of all, and we're actually going to build up to it by examining four separate but related categories of text once again listed in increasing order of difficulty, all with one unifying theme, and that is God kills people. Like a lot, all through Scripture. And today, God kills people. If that is going to tackle God's role in our spiritual death next week, allowing or even sending people to hell, then this week I've got it much easier because I've just got to try and explain why God could allow or cause physical, temporal death in this life. Both are, of course, tough. These topics are tough for us because we're no longer simply dealing with questions of relevancy. Why does God spend so many pages of Scripture uh, on this? It's no longer about consistency. How does this line up with what we know from history or science elsewhere in Scripture? We've gone far beyond our own personal hang-ups with a passage. I don't like the way this text challenges me or calls me to think or live or act differently. No, now we are square, squarely in the realm of theological problems. We are dealing with the heart of God this morning. How can we possibly call the God of these portions of the Bible a good God? How is a God like this worth worshiping? Specifically, we're going to read a lot of passages this morning where God kills a lot of people for a lot of different reasons that on the surface might seem to us be rather unimportant, absurd, even unfair. These texts 
have left many unbelievers with the impression that the God of the Bible is a cruel, harsh, excessive, vindictive, bloodthirsty, maniacal psychopath, as I heard one atheist describe God in my research this week. A.W. Pink points out the Bible has more references to the wrath of God than it does to the love of God. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Why? For one thing, I think it's because many more people will end up there. It's the same reason that in the passage we're about to read in Deuteronomy 28, there are 54 verses on curses, but Moses only spends 14 verses on blessings. Why? Because the curses are just far more relevant for most people's lives. I think it's also because we tend to ignore unpleasant truths. I suspect that none of you will have heard ever in your life a sermon on most of the passages we're going to be reading this morning. We want to turn a blind eye to the tough passages in Scripture. And so God goes out of his way to emphasize them all the more. 54 verses. The first subcategory of problematic text that we find, and by the way, if you're following along your bulletins, I'm not going to be sticking to the strict outline there. I I'm, uh, had to get, with all the other stuff going on this week, had to get those to the press pretty early. Um, and so I'm actually going to be spending the bulk of the sermon on those first four points that you see just in your introduction. And then we're, we're really only going to turn to consider the Bible's answers to how we think through these problematic passages toward the end. But the, the first category that I'll give you is the imprecations. An imprecation is a curse that invokes misfortune on someone. The idea here is that God conceives of killing. He inspires this desire for vengeance in the heart of a human author and such imprecations are found all over the Bible, but especially in the Psalms. There are over a dozen imprecatory Psalms. The purpose of its writing was as a prayer for the destruction of the psalmist enemies. And I just want to read for you a few of the highlights straight from the Bible, and I want you to consider this morning why God would not only allow these passages into his Bible but actually inspire them. Because remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so God, in what sense and to what end did you inspire these verses? In what ways, God, do you intend to, to teach us through them, to train us through them, okay? Listen, Psalm 10.15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Psalm 5, make them bear their guilt, O God. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 17, rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Psalm 58, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like a stillborn child who never sees the sun. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Psalm 59, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Psalm 69, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. 
add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Psalm 83, may they become dung for the ground. May you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Psalm 109, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg. May the creditor seize all that he has. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Psalm 140, let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. And last but not least, Psalm 137, verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. What do we do with such passages? We can't just chalk them up to human sinfulness. Like, maybe God just pushed pause on inspiring David as he was writing here so that David could fly off into a, a vengeful tirade. You know, Paul in the New Testament quotes these imprecatory psalms in his epistles as inspired scripture, Romans 11, verses 9 and 10, direct quote of Psalm 69, verses 22, 23. Even Jesus quotes them in John 15, 25. He quotes from both Psalm 35 Psalm 69, and so we can't just write these imprecatory psalms off so easily. But our problem gets even bigger than that because not only does God conceive of killing in the Bible, he flat out commands it. And I promise you, we're going to spend a lot of time on the bad news this morning. One of y'all caught me in the foyer this morning. You're like, you got to give us the good news, pastor, this morning. And, and we're getting there, but we're going to work through a lot of bad news first, Okay. God flat out commands killing. We've already examined a few of these commands in previous sermons in this series, but here's a more comprehensive list of capital punishment level offenders, okay? Witches, fortune tellers, false prophets, homosexual practitioners, adulterers, fornicators, non-virgin brides, disobedient children, priest rejectors, Sabbath workers, non-Levite, tabernacle approachers, polytheists, blasphemers, non-believers, and the list goes on and on and on. The font was getting too small on the slide, so I just stopped. But for perhaps the most popular allegation made against God by non-Christians is that he commissions genocide. You've heard this? Genocide is defined as the deliberate and systematic extermination of a national, racial, political or cultural group. And while the excerpts I'm going to read you in just a moment may sound genocidal, I want to explain to you later why I don't think that they actually fit the definition. But here's the evidence. And, and again, just, a, just the highlights, because I'm not listing Numbers 21, Jeremiah 50, 51, Exodus 23, Joshua 8, Judges 18, 1 Kings 18. You can go read those on your own later. But here's the highlights, Deuteronomy 20. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Remember that. We're coming back to that. And so the Israelites answer God's call. 
Deuteronomy 3.6, we devoted them to destruction. As we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. In fact, when they failed to finish the job, the Israelites got in big trouble with God. Numbers 31, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. And so they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him but all the young girls who have not known a man by lying with him, you can keep alive for yourselves. Similarly, King Saul's mercy in 1 Samuel 15 was the very reason that God rejected him as king over Israel for failing to kill all the conquered Amalekites. We hear Samuel said to Saul, the, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and would not utterly destroy them. And so the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. This is probably as good a time as any to stop and just highlight. What's the unifying theme here? It's not their race. It's not their ethnicity. It's their sin, right? It's really a very simple matter. Sin is not a matter of what we feel is right or wrong. Sin only gets its, its definition objectively and the objective truth of who God is. If God says do it, not to do it is sin. If God says don't do it, to do it is sin. And, and so that's what is at stake here. And again, we'll come back to this in a bit, but we need to keep that in mind. This is about sin. Even our favorite kids' stories, the cute songs that our kids were singing back in the other wing this morning, Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho and the walls come and tumbling down. Do you know what happens in the very next verse? They don't throw a big party together. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. This is what God commands. And God didn't just send his people to judge these pagan nations. He did the opposite as well. He sent the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans to execute divine justice against Israel, his people, Dozens of passages, even more that we could choose from here. But for the sake of time, I'll just read you three. Jeremiah 15. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them, says the Lord. I will send the sword to kill, the dogs to drag away, the vultures to devour, and the wild animals to finish up what is left. Because of the wicked things Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Sin. I will make my people an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Ezekiel prophecies, then I heard the Lord say to the other men, follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Should have backed up a verse and read that. God commands them to go through the people. Ezekiel, go through the people and put a mark 
on the heads of the few people left who follow me, who have not whored away after these pagan gods. But if their foreheads aren't marked, kill them. Show no mercy, have no pity, kill them all, old and young, girls and uh, women, and little children. But do not touch anyone with the mark. Begin your task right here at the temple. So they began by killing the 70 leaders. Defile the temple, the Lord commanded. Fill its courtyards with the bodies of those you kill. Go. And so they went throughout the city and did as they were told. And lastly, Isaiah 13. Behold the day the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its, what? Sinners from it. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. But believe it or not, friends, it gets even worse. Because not only does God conceive of killing, not only does he command killing, God actually carries out killing himself directly, personally, and often. We all know the stories of Noah's flood, Genesis 6, the infamous plagues that he sent on Egypt, Exodus 7 through 12. One website I found this week tallied that God's official kill count in the Bible is 2,038,344 people. Now, I did not fact check that. I didn't take the time to count on myself, but I don't doubt the number. We, of course, can't consider all those deaths, and so I've just pulled out perhaps the three toughest examples for us to consider. In Leviticus chapter 10, Moses' brother Aaron, his two sons Nadab and Abihu, are incinerated. Why? They're burned alive for offering the wrong kind of fire on the altar to God. Did they do it on purpose? Accidentally? text doesn't say. Does that seem harsh? Punishment fits the crime? Second Samuel chapter 6, God strikes righteous man Uzzah down for reaching out to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant when the oxen that are carrying it stumble while transporting it into the city of Jerusalem. She's trying to do a good thing, right? Keep God's Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground. God immediately strikes him, strikes him dead. Does that seem unfair? Excessive? My personal favorite, no surprise, is 2 Kings chapter 2. When God sends two she-bears to maul 42 teenagers for mocking the, private, the prophet Elisha and calling him baldy. And so let that be a lesson to all of you in our youth group here. That bad things happen when you mock a man of the Lord for being follically challenged. But none of those texts are the very toughest this morning because not only does God conceive of killing, not only does he command killing, not only does he carry it out himself, God actually chooses killing. He wills it. 
in some sense, in at least one sense, God even desires it. You say, wait a minute. I thought you already prayed, read for us, Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Yes, and that's true. And yet it is equally true. Scripture is equally clear that there is a very real sense in which God is actually pleased to execute his justice. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, our very toughest text for today, and arguably in the entire Bible, we get a vivid, gruesome picture of that, of God not only foretelling his judgment against Israel's sin in gory detail, but his actually taking delight in it. I told you, the first 14 verses of the chapter, God outlines the blessings that will pour out on Israel if they will but keep his commands and obey him And then he turns sharply in verse 15 and spends the next 54 verses. This is the longest literary unit in all of the book of Deuteronomy. He spends on curses that he will bring upon them if they disobey the law that he has just finished delivering to them. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. Uh, This is how the Old Testament law draws to a close right here. Okay? And I've, I've cut some for sake of time, selected excerpts, Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all his commands and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. And here they are. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go away into captivity. You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress. The man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother. To the wife he embraces and to the last of his children whom he has left so that he will not give any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating because he has nothing else left in the siege and the distress. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and so tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you 
and on your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Affliction severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting until you are destroyed. Whereas you are numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And here we go, toughest verse in the Bible. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. This is the word of the Lord. What do we do with a passage like this? The Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you, bringing this kind of destruction upon you, watching your wives be ravaged, watching you eat your own children. And we know historically it happened. This, this, this all is recorded in history, the siege of, of Jerusalem, the year 70. What do we do? I see four options. This is not even yet the bulk of your outline there. It's just in the middle. I see four options here. Number one, we might suggest, that was just the God of the Old Testament. He was a God of wrath. Thank God for Jesus, the God of the New Testament, who reveals a God of love to us. That's how the second century heretic Marcion dealt with this theological tension. He just postulated two gods, a God of the Old Testament versus a God of the New Testament. Unfortunately for Marcion, there's two big problems with that. Number one, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God the Father is the same as well. Malachi 3.6 says, God tells us, for I, the Lord, do not change. God didn't just decide to stop being wrathful and start being loving with Jesus. He doesn't change. Secondly, there's lots in the Old Testament about God's love and his mercy. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So much in the Old Testament about God's love. There's also a lot in the New Testament about God's wrath. God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead on the spot in Acts chapter 5 for lying. You want wrath? Read the entire book of Revelation. It matches anything you'll find in the Old Testament, what's coming. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 3, 5, and 6, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to what? The wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And of course, Thad's passage for next Sunday, Romans chapter 9, verse 22, God desiring to show his wrath, desiring Delighting, he wanted to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So we forget Marcionism. The second option is the God of liberal process theology, a God who isn't actually sovereign. 
God's not actually in charge, in control. We can get God off the hook for all of these alleged biblical atrocities if we just believe that the human authors thought that God was commanding them to go kill their Canaanite neighbors. They thought God's just judgment was the reason that thousands of their own fellow Israelites had gotten the plague and died, but come on. I mean, they were primitive people. We know better today. We know the real reason. Sickness, the flu. So we parse out good from evil according to our own arbitrary standards of morality, what feels right to us, and we, we might give God credit for helping pull off some of the good stuff. You know, you find a parking spot close to the building. Thanks, God. But coronavirus, bad stuff, somehow God just fell asleep for a minute. God stepped off his throne. That somehow caught God by surprise. God can't be sovereign over that, right? And a good God over human death, over she-bears mauling teenagers to death. But God's word clearly tells us our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All that he desires, delights, pleases. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will, his desires, his choosing. And so we must rule out biblically the God of process theology as well. God is sovereign. He is in control over everything, even the tough stuff. Isaiah 45, God declares, I am the Lord. And there is no other. There's not two gods, friends. We are not dualists. It's not like God and Satan are duking it out and we're not sure which one's going to win. And sometimes, you know, Satan wins and that's when bad stuff happens. Sometimes God wins. God doesn't have a rival. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all. All these things. He's sovereign. And he's good. I'm going to show you later why you want God to be that big. A third option for dealing with these tough texts is to simply say, okay, I can't. If that really is God, I'm done. That's disgusting. A God who would delight in bringing destruction and watching his own people reduced to cannibalism, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm taking my ball and going home. And many of you in this room, streaming at home, I know that you have loved ones close to you who have opted for option three. They've walked away from the faith. Right? If, if this is the kind of God that, that, that your church is trying to get me to, to pray to, to worship, to love, no thanks. Your siblings, your parents, your kids, your spouses have walked away. Maybe you have. Maybe that's you this morning. And you're trying desperately to cling to whatever shred of faith you've got left in the alleged goodness of God. And frankly, this sermon up to this point is not helping a whole lot. That was me. For many years of my life, that's why I walked away from the faith. My church didn't preach these texts. 
it was hard for me to find resources to preach on this text because not a lot of people do. But it's why our kids are walking away from the faith when they get to college and they read it for themselves in their intro to Bible classes. Because the atheists will introduce them to these texts if we don't. And they'll give them answers. Friends, I want to show you another way, another option, a fourth way of understanding these troubling texts. I was racking my brain this week trying to figure out how in the world I was going to tie the gospel into a sermon like this. Right? The gospel is the central message of all of the Bible. It is the good news of Christianity. It's the power of salvation for all who believe, Romans 1.16. And so you're going to hear the gospel in every single sermon here at West Hills. If you don't, you should fire me. Because the gospel is the most important news in the world, in all of history. And in case this is your first Sunday here, in case this is your last Sunday, in case Corona takes over, and it's all of our last Sundays, this news is too good for you not to hear, for us not to share. But as I was racking my brain this week, thinking, what kind of theological, exegetical gymnastics am I going to have to try and pull off to squeeze any good news out of a sermon like this, horrifying texts like these? It dawned on me, and God revealed to me, stop trying so hard to squeeze the gospel in here. These passages point us to the beautiful truth of the gospel in a way that few passages in all of Scripture do. Because the, especially the first two truths of the gospel, but really all of them, because the gospel is four simple yet profound truths about who God is, about who you are, about what God has done for you because of that, and about what you now need to do in response. Number one, God is holy. That's who God is. God is holy. God's holiness means that he is set apart in all his perfections. Of all of God's attributes, his love, his mercy, his power, God's holiness is the most important for us to grasp because it gives definition to all the others. God is perfect in his love, different than our love. God is perfect in his mercy. He is perfect in his power. God's holiness is emphasized more in scripture than any of his other attributes. Why? It's the only quality that is repeated three times in succession. He is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6.3, Revelation 4.8, for additional emphasis so you don't miss it. He is holy. He's set apart. God is not like us. We don't have the faintest glimpse of just how perfect God is, how wonderful, how majestic how awesome the songs we sang this morning, how great thou art. We don't really grasp it, get it, because if we did, we'd be like the angels in heaven who sing holy, holy, holy around the throne of, of heaven all day long for the rest of eternity, and they never get tired or bored. Some of y'all are worried about getting bored in heaven. You don't get it. You don't get how holy God is. You will not get bored. He is really that awesome. And if you don't understand how holy God is, you won't understand his justice. You won't understand how he could wipe out an entire nation for being not holy, for being utterly sinful, 
how God could kill a well-intentioned guy who was just trying to help out and catch the ark from getting dirty. But he disobeyed God's direct command. God said, don't touch it, and he touched it. The path to hell are paved with good intentions, right? Sin is disobeying what God says, whether it seems arbitrary to you or not. It seems arbitrary to take a bite of an apple, right? It's an apple. God said, don't do it. And the rest of human history is us dealing with the consequences of of Adam and Eve doing it, right? That leads us to our second truth of the gospel. Man is sinful. Humans are sinful. You are sinful. I am sinful. In the same way that we don't have the slightest inkling of just how holy God is. We don't have the slightest uh, glimpse of just how sinful we are, or we would all be curled up in the fetal position right now, waiting for God to surely strike us dead, incinerate us on the spot. You will never appreciate these tough texts until you appreciate just how not only holy God is up there, but how sinful you are. When you start to realize that when you look in the mirror of God's word and you, realize, and you see yourself for who you really are, not for the lies you tell yourself, the lies the enemy wants you to believe, you're good enough. If, they love, if God loves you, he'd just accept you exactly as you are. God loves you too much to leave you in your sin. If you really see yourself the way that, that, that you ought to in the mirror of God's word, your lack of obedience, your sinfulness, you'll be faced with a much different problem, actually. It's actually the opposite problem. You'll stop asking, how could a good God allow? You will ask instead, God, how could you, in all of your perfection, in all of your holiness, possibly allow such wickedness to persist for even a single day on this earth? God, why don't you send Noah's flood part two every single day to deal with the wickedness, the sin all around us. How could you let so much sin exist in the world that you created and you love? How do you bear with us with so much patience? So we've got to recognize that of, of all 2,038,344 deaths that the Lord brings about in Scripture, not a single one of them was arbitrary. Not a single one of them was, was capricious was unjustified. A Christian will never ask, how could God allow an innocent person to die? Because the Christian knows he never has. Except for once. We'll get to that in a moment. That's your good news coming. An innocent person is a contradiction of terms. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin, what our sin rightfully earns us, deserves, every one of us deserves death. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, Uzzah, Nadab, Abihu, Ananias, Sapphira, you, me, your, your loved ones who have gone before you, who you lost prematurely, I want to be sensitive this morning. But you won't understand, you won't be able to understand these passages or, or the difficult 
life circumstances that perhaps you've had to deal with until you realize that even that person who you loved, who God took, they deserved to die. They didn't deserve the 30 years God gave them on this earth and the first, the 40 years. You don't, I don't deserve another day around here. We don't deserve the breath in our lungs that we're gonna sing about in our closing song and thank God for. We don't deserve a single breath. We are so sinful and he is so holy. And the better question really is why did God in the case of the conquest narratives. Why did God make the Israelites endure hardship in Egypt for 400 years instead of leading them out sooner to slaughter these godless, idolatrous, child-sacrificing, heathen nations? Sooner, God, God gives us the answer. It's really important, Genesis 15, 16. When he promises that land to Abram in the first place, he tells us, exactly what's going to happen. He tells Abram, it's because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The Bible gives us only the Israelite perspective, but it's clear that God was reaching out to these pagan peoples, even these, even these people who were sacrificing their own kids, whoring after other gods. God was reaching out to them in his patience, his forbearance, his love and mercy, giving them every possible opportunity to repent, to turn and follow him, the true God. For 400 years, because he is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, he really is a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. A God who, 2 Peter 3.9, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, but friends, God's patience will not endure forever. It didn't for the Amorites. They got 400 years. Guess what? You probably won't get that long, especially if corona keeps going, Right? You are not, we are not promised our next breath around this place. If we take anything from the, the chaos that's going on in our world, let it remind you of your own mortality. You are not promised your next breath around here. And if you have not yet reached repentance and turned from your sin and turned to serve the living God, then you need to hear, before you get the good news, you need to hear the bad news this morning, that he is also a God. The rest of that passage, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and even the fourth generation. Why? Because he's good. God is too good to let sin go unpunished. You don't want God to not be just. You certainly don't when it comes to other people's sin, right? Well, we pray imprecatory psalms all the time, don't we? We want them to get punished. In our hearts, we want God to be just, and he is. But the really toughest question of all this morning is how can God be both those things? How can God be perfectly loving and merciful towards us while also remaining perfectly holy and just? And the answer is in our third gospel truth, the most important of all. And here's how we'll close. Because number three, Jesus is Savior. On the cross, 
Jesus Christ satisfied both the righteous wrath of God against sin while perfectly, simultaneously displaying the undeserved love of God for sinners like us. That is the hardest truth to swallow, is, is that God did not begrudgingly send Jesus to the cross in the same way that God delighted to pour out his justice and, and bring destruction upon the sinful Israelites. God tells us in Isaiah 53 that surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by who? By Pontius Pilate? By Caiaphas? By other people? By God, not just by sinful man. This was the plan and the will from the beginning of time, from God, the Father. Now forget about, for a minute, the, the most seemingly innocent person who God executes justice on. Think of Jesus. It's even more clear in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. The same Hebrew word for delight. It was God's delight to crush Jesus. Maybe that's the most difficult verse of the Bible. How does God take delight in punishing Jesus for our sin? I don't want to presume to give you easy answers to the hardest questions we could ask together. But I will, in closing, give one perspective for you to take home and think and pray about and research and wrestle through on your own. John Piper calls it God's wide-angle versus his narrow-lens view of the world. Piper explains when, when God looks at a painful or wicked event through a narrow lens, he sees the tragedy of sin for what it is in itself, and he is angered, or he is grieved at what he sees. That's how God can take pleasure in the death of no one. And yet, when he looks through his wide-angle lens, he sees the tragedy of human sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing from it. He sees it in relation to all of the connections and all of the effects that form a pattern or a mosaic stretching into all of eternity. And that mosaic and all of its parts, good and evil, Light and dark tiles in the mosaic, right? Bring him delight. Why? Because what's the big picture that the light and dark tiles, when you put it all together, what's the big picture of all of Scripture, of all of human history? What's it all pointing to, the overarching picture? It's Jesus. It's Jesus hanging on the cross for us. Friends, these are difficult truths to accept. Who can receive them? With man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible and necessary. That's the very last gospel truth you need to hear this morning. It's number four. Faith is required. Faith is required. You must respond one way 
or the other to Jesus, to the God of the Bible? Will you walk away and reject him? Will you open your arms and receive God's just, loving, holy, merciful sacrifice for you in the person of Jesus? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, receives him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray.